Do people with disabilities truly belong, or do we simply accommodate their differences? In this episode, you'll hear from Mike Langford, Associate Professor of Theology, Discipleship, and Ministry at SPU. He sat down with us to discuss theology, disability, and youth ministry. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Tell me a little bit about um, why you're teaching on this particular topic. Great. Yeah, thanks for asking, and it's good to be here with you, Sherry. Um, why am I teaching on it? As far as why am I, I am personally teaching on it is because I've, I've long had an interest in thinking theologically about youth ministry ever since I myself was a youth minister and was totally theologically unprepared and didn't know what I was doing. And, um, and I think that the longer I did it, the more I was dismayed by that fact um, in that the church had no problem with the fact that I was theologically unprepared. All the, the church really cared about was that I could play broom ball and could play four cards, chords on a guitar. But the longer I did it, the more I realized that I had not given much theological reflection to what I was doing. And that sort of began a long journey uh, for me in ministry and in education to sort of equip myself to uh, think more theologically about youth ministry, which is, is sort of big part of my vocation. Um, now, um, another part of me is, is that I myself have a disability. I have cerebral palsy. And for much of my life, I didn't own that. I, I don't even really think I thought about it that much. And, um, and it wasn't really even until after college that I started owning my disability more as part of my identity. And then as I uh, owned it more as part of my identity, I couldn't help because it's also part of my identity. I couldn't help but not think about that theologically too. And what do you mean when you say own it? Um, to understand that part of who I am is someone who lives with a disability. Um, that my cerebral palsy is part of who I am. It's not something that I need to be ashamed of or something that I need to um, bracket out from my identity, but that it actually contributes to my identity and that it's not a bad thing. It's just part of who I am. And it contributes to who I am. And, 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 and not, as it, not only does it just contribute to who I am and that it's part of me in my body, but it's, it's, it, it defines who I am because of how the world around me has defined disability. But as I sort of thought more about theology of disability, I started to see more and more intersection between theological reflection on disability and theological reflection on youth ministry. So that's a long answer to your question of why I personally am interested in this is because they entwine in my own story and I see them both as informing each other. Yeah. yeah. So usually when um, scholars research something or teach about yeah. something, it's because they believe something is at stake yeah. or because it deeply touches their own story. I right. assume both are the case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you're looking um, at young people in ministry with young people, um, what kind of door is opened in talking about yeah. disability and youth ministry? Good, thanks. So, um, so briefly, the the story of, of of disability and how I think we as as a culture think about disability is that, you know, if if you if you think about what disability is, and, and if you say that the disabled community includes people who are blind, who are deaf, who are on the autism spectrum, who um, are amputees, who um, 
uh, have various emotional disorders or afflictions, um, people who um, have Alzheimer's. Um, all, all of those people, we would say, are disabled. But what do they have in common with each other? They're all totally different than each other. It's so broad, it's almost right. unhelpful. Totally, these are people are totally different. So how is it that they're all disabled? And this is the, the answer is, is that they are all seen as somehow deficient. Like they all are lacking something that, lacking something that we would consider they, they would need to be quote unquote normal, to be fully people like, just normal people. And so the fact that somebody is identified by a factor that is a deficiency um, is really marginalizing and really, um, yeah, it is, it's, it's not good to sort of feel that the thing that sort of most characterizes me is something that makes me kind of vaguely subhuman. And the reason, so what's at stake is I think that the, the way that we sort of see and think about people with disabilities is an issue of oppression and marginalization, no less than other people groups that are oppressed and marginalized. It's just that it's, um, I say that, that our, our treatment of people with disabilities is sort of a socially acceptable marginalization, mm. that it's sort of still seen as okay. And the way I see this interacting with youth ministry is that I think that we also think of adolescents in the same way, is that um, adolescents that we often think of them as um, kind of on their way to becoming fully human, that um, once they've gotten through adolescence, then they are fully part of society, fully part of the church. Um, and so we tend to see them sort of on the way to that, but but not necessarily them being fully members of the church right now. So we almost view their place in life as being their deficiency. Right, exactly. And so, and we hope it's temporary. And oh yeah, just totally. Get it. <laughs> right. And just as in, just as in, just as people with disabilities, how we hire medical professionals to try to help them to become quote unquote normal or to uh, find a way around their disability, um, we also hire and employ lots of professionals to help our adolescents get through adolescence, right, and mm -hmm. to become adults. And the reason why is because the dominant culture is adult. It's made up of adults. And so we define what is normal. We define what it is to be sort of fully a member of society and fully human. And that's not adolescence. They don't have that kind of power. And so I think that the way that we think about people with disabilities and the way that we think about youth, are, there, there's tons of overlap, especially in the church. So you're using the term youth theology. Yes, not Y-O-U-T-H, right. but E-U-T-H. E yeah. Can you explain what you mean by that? Sure. So um, my argument is that, uh, that we can't look at youth ministry as just developmental, that we can't just see it as we need to get people through the stage of adolescence so that they can reach adulthood, which is sort of the real stage. Um, uh, now, there are actual real developmental needs that I think adolescents have, just like all of us have certain needs that we need to be that need to be met. But I would say that that's not even the primary heuristic that we need to be looking at youth ministry as. I think we need to look at youth ministry as um, cross-cultural encounter, that we are 
in youth ministry, we are dealing with a particular culture with a particular group of people uh, who make meaning in a certain way and um, emphasize certain things um, that are different than the dominant culture. And so I think that, that youth make up their own, there's actually many youth cultures, but that youth sort of reside in their own culture, which is not the dominant culture. Well, um, there's lots of groups of people like that that are not dominant cultures and sort of because they have often been othered by by the dominant culture, they are sort of put in a position where they sort of um, think theologically in their own way. And we often call that contextual theology. And so different groups of people, different contexts, um, they have their own contextual theology, just like you have feminist theology or black theology or disability theology. I think that we also need to think that the the theology that youth do is their own contextual theology. It's a legitimate contextual theology. So can you and, give me an example of some theology that you sure. see young people doing? Right. So so it's, that's what youth theology is. Youth theology would be contextual theology of youth. So, so on the one hand, I cannot totally give you an example because I'm not a youth. So it's not my, it's not my context. But, I, but I, what I can say is that I, I call it youth theology one because it's sort of playful that it's like sounds like youth theology, but EU actually the prefix means true, new or good in Greek. And so I think that youth have particular things to offer the dominant culture. For instance, youth are usually unencumbered by sort of the social stratifications that we as adults often have. Youth are playful. They're imaginative. Just that's just part of who they are. That's part of their culture. It's part of their makeup. And so their theology is often playful and sort of um, makes adults sometimes uncomfortable, right? But I think that that's something, a power and a privilege actually that youth have that, that um, we adult, the dominant culture, we need to submit to that and learn from that, that we could be more playful and imaginative with our theology. I also think that youth are more in touch with sort of the elemental needs of life. I think that sometimes as adults, we can get stratified into um, just the everyday humdrum of life and sort of the things we have to do just to get through to survive or to pay the bills or whatever. And I think youth um, sometimes have not been as anesthetized. I think that they have a grasp on the real things of life, relationships, meaning, um, as asking questions of development, who am I and why am I here, that I think that sometimes we forget or it's not as, they're not as critical for us. And I think that that sort of vitality is something that they have to offer um, the dominant culture as well. And I think, so I think without those sorts of questions, I think that we are, the dominant, the adults, we're missing out. And I think that we need youth, we need youth theology if we're going to have a fully orbed theology, understanding of God and self and vocation. So we've, went, we've gone a little afield of talking about disability yeah. within that context. Yeah. So how is that related to youth theology then? Disability, you mean? Mm -hmm. So I think that the same is true for folks who are disabled, is that folks who are disabled have particular understandings of self and God um, that, uh, that the rest of us can learn from um, who maybe don't identify as disabled. And so um, I think that uh, folks who are disabled have a particular understanding of vulnerability that is necessary for humanity that um, many of us rail against the idea of vulnerability. Um, and I think that folks who are disabled have particular understandings of community and embodiedness that I think a lot of the dominant culture doesn't doesn't understand. So I think that we need folks who are disabled just to help us to do theology. But I will say that um, 
even more so, even if folks who are disabled had no particular theological ideas to contribute, which they do, um, we still need to understand that that youth and folks who are disabled are part of the body of Christ and that we are maybe with the best of intentions that we are marginalizing them outside the body of Christ because they're not part of the dominant culture. And I think that, um, that, that we often make space for them, but that they don't necessarily belong. Um, I can say a little bit more about that. Yeah, please do. Um, that I think that sometimes, uh, at the church and I'm, I'm following a lot here that the thought of John Swinton is that, and that this is true for both the disabled community and for youth is that we, are big on inclusion, but we're short on belonging. Mm. And I think uh, that we're, when, when I say inclusion, I mean that we make space for people. Like physically uh, we make space for people? Sure, like yeah. Like allow them. Yeah, like, this- um, like, so we'll say, oh, well, you know, for maybe for the disabled community, we say, oh, you know, we'll build a ramp for you if you're in a wheelchair or, or uh, you know, we'll have a sign language interpreter for folks who are deaf or, um, or, or with youth, you know, we'll, we, we, we love our youth. We'll put them, you know, on the, on the front page of our, of our church brochure and all this stuff. Maybe we'll have a youth, you know, leading in worship once in a while in some way. And I would say that that's inclusion. We're making space for them. They're part of it. But belonging means that um, with inclusion, if the people are not there, we still are okay. We exist. We make space for them. But if they don't show up, that's okay. That's your decision. We, there's space here if you want it. We'd love to have you. But if you don't show up, that's fine too. We're fine with you. We're, We're fine, fine without you. Exactly. We're fine with you. We're fine without you. We're still whole. We're still ourselves, right? Belonging means if they're not there, that you're incomplete, right? Your Part of you is missing. If they belong, part of you is missing, right? We have this um, tradition at, in, in my um, house. I, I have... My wife and I, we have four kids and we have this thing where if one of, if I am gone from dinner or if one of the kids is gone from dinner, we still set them a place at at the table and they're just not there. And that sort of reminds us that they're, they belong even if they're not there. Right. And so the idea is that, um, do, and I think we do, I think of the church, we often, we we're good on inclusion, but we don't go the extra step to belonging where they are actually part of the church so much so that if they're not there, something's missing. So like, you know, the adage, you've probably heard the adage of making space at the table, right? Mm -hmm. So we say, there's always room at the table, children, youth, you're there's space at the table for you folks with disability. There's, there's, there's space at the table for you. Um, but I would say that if there's truly space at the table for them, if the, if the table is truly theirs also, that the table has to look different. It's not just a matter of making space at our table. It's meaning we might have to redesign this table because there are certain folks where the table's too high or, um, or they can't, they're being crowded out. You know what I mean? If it's their table as much as it's my table, then that means we have to think about the structure of this table. Mm-hmm. And, and so what I'm, what I'm saying is that at churches um, and, and in a lot of parts of society, but I'm talking about the church, we, we stop short after inclusion and we, we don't go to belonging because belonging costs, it costs you to expand your circle of belonging. Yeah, yeah. that's really helpful. So t- we, you talked a little bit about how 
um, disability encompasses such a large group of people yeah. and a group that feels kind of disparate if you actually start yeah. thinking about all the different things that can fall under that umbrella. Um, but as a Reformed theologian, if we were to think about folks with cognitive disabilities, yeah. Yeah. in many Reformed traditions, yeah. intellectual assent yeah. is really important. Right, right. Can you frame that a little bit? Or sure, totally. Um, tease that apart? And, and, and so I would say, yeah, in the Reformed tradition, and I'm part of the Reformed tradition, that the Reformed tradition, there's often a, a uh, an emphasis on sort of intellectually understanding things. And, and I would say that, you know, in some other traditions, there's there's other sort of cognitive abilities attached to uh, being a Christian or following Jesus. You know, you have to sort of, quote unquote, accept Jesus or make some sort of decision. There's a public confession of faith right. or confirmation. Right. So something that you, have baptism. To, that you have to perform or something that you have to do that requires a certain sort of ability. And so what I, what I would say is that, yeah, that that's defined by a certain culture, that that's an understanding defined by a certain culture. And so what happens when somebody's not a part of that culture? Well, that they'll never be seen as a Christian or a follower of Jesus or fully human for that matter. So, um, so I would say that, uh, now I'm, I'm a fan of, of sort of, of intellectual activity. I've made a career out of it. Um, but I would say that there's, there's much, I would say a couple of things. One, there's much more to being human than intellectual ability. And two, that there's more than one way to be human. And, um, uh, or, or being human has a lot of different pieces to it. And some of us are stronger in some of those than others. And, and I think that this encourages um, more of a corporate understanding of humanity and a more cor corporate understanding of the body of Christ. Because, you know, understanding things intellectually and sort of thinking things out, that actually is important. I mean, that's good. It's just I'm not sure that everybody needs to be able to do that. And I think that there's some folks that do and some folks that don't do that so well. I would say even within the Reformed tradition, there's tons and tons of people in the Reformed tradition that don't work very rigorously intellectually at what they believe and what they think about, but they're still sort of seen as members of the church body, um, which is fine. And, and, and so uh, I think that, but I think that actually disabled folks have a pretty good handle on that. They have a pretty good handle on the fact that for them, even though maybe the culture is screaming otherwise, I think that they understand that there's more to them being human than just their their body, including their brain, working exactly like other people. And so what would it be like for our churches to remember that, one, we're corporate, so we all have different gifts and abilities to offer. And so I'm a Christian because I'm a part of this group, not because my brain works a certain way. And also, what would it be like for our churches, including the Reformed churches, to... Um, embrace different ways of knowing and experiencing God. So um, what would it be like to have more images for not just folks that we label as disabled, but just folks that respond better to that, to experiencing God through images, through the sacraments, um, uh, through certain things that we do with our bodies? Like, what would it be like to say that that's a legitimate way of reflecting on and experiencing God as you know, in crafting and listening to a, a, a well-ordered three-point sermon, you know? Um, yeah, I think the reform, I think not just reform tradition, I think a lot of our traditions have a lot of work to do on expanding how the dominant culture has defined what it means to participate within the body of Christ. Yeah, that's yeah. great. So, so in your working definition, who is disabled and who needs healing? Yeah. 
so I want to be careful here because um, uh, because I think that we do tend to, to define disability as people who do not have sort of some sort of quality that uh, is mandated by the dominant culture as as you needing to be human. Um, so so I would say actually that in many ways somebody is is not disabled because of something going on in their body. They have been disabled by society. Like society has disabled them because society has decided that whatever quality they have, they're less than. Um, you know, I often say that if, if for whatever reason, if most people sort of were born without, were born with one arm, that a lot of our furniture and tools and everything would look a lot different and um and we wouldn't say somebody with one arm is disabled anymore and so it's because that somebody's different okay so um however i uh so, so i guess if you continue to go down that direction you could say that nobody is disabled that 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 um everybody just has different struggles so we're differently able right all of us have different abilities all of us have different things we're good and bad at all of us need each other because there are some people that don't have use of their legs and that's a struggle for them and they need help to get around and there's um there's some folks that can't see and they need help to get around or whatever some people's brains work differently so they need help but there's other um i there's other folks that have other weaknesses i i tell the story on the blog about a kid that walks into a classroom and is just mercifully he has autism I and mean, he's mercilessly made fun of, right? Just by these kids that are just making fun of him and calling him names and stuff. Why do we call the kid with autism as the one with disability? Why is cruelty not a disability? Why is greed not a disability? Why is selfishness not a disability, right? And so, um, so I think those are things that need to be healed too. Those are different sorts of struggles, right? Especially so in, the, in the body of Christ. Right. So I think we, all, we, we just all have different struggles in the end. However, I do want to say this, that um, I don't want to make too little of a lot of the um, real struggles that many folks with disabilities have. So if somebody is living with chronic back pain and that's all, their whole life experience is just dealing with this pain all the time, I don't want to say to them, look, in the end, your struggle is the same as someone that's dealing with greed. They're just different sorts of problems. Um, I, so I, I do want to say that that um, or, or if somebody's lacking an arm saying like, ah, you're just different, you know, like, no, actually, their life is really difficult, you know. So I would say that because of the structures that we've created in our world and in our society, um, including the ways that we respond to our own bodies, I think that or, or live in our own bodies or with our own bodies or with each other's bodies, that um, uh, that there are lots and lots of different sorts of struggles. So lots and lots of different sorts of disabilities, but some are more poignant and urgent than others. Um, and I think we need to pay attention to that. Um, so yeah, so I would say in a way, every, all of us are disabled. We all have struggles. And in, in fact, in some ways I, I use the word struggles more than disability. Um, but I also recognize that folks who live with disabilities, the ones that we commonly call disabilities, that those are sort of, I don't want to, um, poo-poo those away too much if that makes any sense and mm -hmm. saying they're just like they're just like everybody else they have some because of of the ways that they have grown and in, in, in this society they have real concerns that we need to pay attention to um, that are urgent 
So what do you wish that every minister or every Christian leader knew mm-hmm. as they were thinking about their particular context? Yeah, within their own congregation. Um, I guess I would want to say um, for youth or for those who are disabled, I would want them to think about the, the, the folks in their congregation as belonging to the body of Christ, to them, to them belonging to the church. And so no longer would it be like... Um, I have to build a ramp, say, again, um, to comply with ADA, which is the law of the land, or that I have to build a ramp to be politically correct or you know, to be admired by the church down the street or whatever. But rather, I need to build a ramp because Joe needs it. Right? Mm-hmm. Somebody, they're part of my congregation. They need to get in the door. So I need to do this so that they can get in the door, right? Because we're it, not complete unless right, Joe is here. Right, that's part of my family. If I, if I was at home and if my son couldn't walk, I wouldn't say I'm building a ramp up the stairs because it's politically correct or to, to even to comply with the law. I would do it because Seth needs to get up the stairs and get to the dinner table, you know? And so, and I wouldn't, um, or, or for, for, for people in the congregation to be thinking of, um, lots of other disabilities in their congregation and what can I do in my congregation uh, for them to feel like they belong more because they truly do and to be asking the questions of what does it mean for them to help determine what this congregation looks like because they're part of it and the same is true with youth so not to just look at youth as somebody, people that are welcome, people that we think are cute and adorable and all that stuff, but what does it mean to actually change the structure of my church? Um, uh, the way that we think about ourselves, the way that we govern ourselves, the way that we do worship, the way that we preach, everything. What does it mean for us to think about youth when we're making those decisions? Um, because they are part of the church, right? They, are, they do belong or they ought to. And so I guess I would want people that are working with youth or with folks who are disabled or just in churches to look toward radical belonging with everybody in their church. What does it mean for us as a church for those people to truly belong, not just be included, but to belong? Do you have a good example of what that looks like? Can you think of a group of people who's doing this really well that inspires you? Um, No. Um, we have a lot of work to do. (laughs) Um, I mean, there are, I think there are churches, some churches that are doing a better job than others. I think there are some churches that, um, let me take that back. I, 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 one just came to my mind. Uh, there is, um, actually a Roman Catholic church, uh, near where I live in Seattle where, um, they do, um, they're a larger church. So they do four, um, masses every Sunday morning. And um, one of the masses is actually entirely run by the youth. Um, now the priest still has to administer the sacrament, um, but the youth uh, in the church, um, they serve as the liturgists, they serve as the ushers, they do the setup, they do the cleanup, they lead other elements of the worship. And they're not doing this merely because it's cute or adorable or it's a fun youth group activity. They're doing it because, one, because the church has an awesome youth leader um, who gets it. And two, because through largely through his work, the church is thinking, what does it mean for us to radically consider these youth as part of our, they are belong to this church. And therefore, 
Um, they are receivers of what the church has to give, but they're also um, uh, uh, distributors or givers of what the church has to give. And so they're part of it. Um, there are other churches, for instance, that they will have youth. Um, they'll have a, a, an adolescent on uh, um, on session on, as an elder. Um, I think that's good if they're... If, if our elders are determined by spiritual maturity and not merely age, then why would we not? If a, if a youth is spiritually mature enough, why would they not be on session? Is something happened at the age of 21 where all of a sudden, I know tons of adults that are not spiritually qualified to, see, to serve on session, right? So um, there's lots of churches. I, there are lots of churches I see that use like youth, like as ushers and greeters and maybe read uh, scripture up front and stuff. And that's, that's good. That's, I, I want to affirm that. But what does it mean for us to have youth preach? What does it mean for us to have youth um, design worship services? What does it mean for us to have youth lead mission trips? Um, and before people say, you know, well, some of them just aren't equipped or aren't able to do that. Well, I would say one, well, then don't have those youth do it. There's adults also that are not equipped to do it. So find youth that are equipped to do whatever it is and use them. But also more than that, maybe think differently about what you're doing. Talk, talk to the youth. What do they see as important? What do they see as important for the youth group to be doing and then shape it around that. So yeah, I, I think it's just, so I've seen some churches do that as well. Um, so it sounds like there's a goal of moving beyond a developmental approach into an integrated approach. Yeah. And, and so for churches to admit that we we are not all one context or one culture. So it's not just the dominant adult culture, which is going to continue to be dominant, but that we all have another culture in our midst, namely youth culture. What does it mean for us as a, as a church to be um, a collection of cultures? Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much, Mike. Yeah, totally. Thank you. You've been listening to The Distillery. Interviews are conducted by me, Sherry Osting. I'm Garrett Mostowski, and I'm in charge of production. And I'm Christy Holly, and I'm the creative designer. Like what you're hearing? Let us know by rating us on iTunes. The Distillery Podcast is part of The Thread, a production of Princeton Theological Seminary's Office of Continuing Education. You can find more episodes and other content at thethread.ptsem.edu. Thanks for listening.